is Thomas D'Angelo of Crisis of Taste, and you are listening to the Foxy Podcast. Welcome to the Foxy Podcast. Bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. Show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here in the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 66 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there wherever you're listening from. We have a special show put together for you for this episode. As you heard at the very beginning, we have Thomas D'Angelo joining us this time around. Thomas runs Crisis of Taste, a superb new independent publisher and distributor of generally unclassifiable music and print that shares a lot of overlapping interests in contemporary underground and experimental activity with us here at Freeform Freakout. And Crisis of Taste grew out of D'Angelo's previous work with his print zine put the music in its coffin. 
and the critical writing element of that project continues on with his insightful reviews of all the music that he carries through Crisis of Taste. And he has also begun to interact with and critique modern composition and sounds through his own solo recordings as TD that are starting to surface on labels such as Kai and Vitrine, along with his excellent podcast called Difficult Listening Made Easy. And on this episode, I talk with Thomas about these various endeavors that he's involved in. He also put together a great selection of tracks for us to play throughout that informs his work with Crisis of Taste and his solo output, along with some forthcoming and unreleased material from some like-minded friends and associates of Crisis of Taste. We'll get into a couple more tracks here before we move into that first interview segment. Here's something from Moolah. Thank you. 
Next song is called How We Do Our. before getting into uh, crisis of tastes and uh, related things, uh, we should maybe back up a little bit and discuss your zine, Put the Music in Its Coffin, which you had published uh, five issues of from about uh, 2010 to 2013. So I guess, you know, during a time where, where blogs were, were sort of the new zines, 
And uh, I know that's maybe not so much the case anymore, but, you know, what compelled you to doing a legitimate print publication at that time? Um, okay, yeah. Well, um, first of all, let me say, uh, you know, just, uh, thank you, David, for, um, for asking me to do this. Um, it's been uh, great corresponding with you and uh, look forward to talking more. And, um, and then thank you for, uh, for considering uh, the Music Against Coffin a legitimate uh, publication. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know go quite that far. Um, but yeah, uh, doing doing it on print rather than online. Um, I'm glad I'm glad that you started with a question about um, the music against coffin. Um, for one, because Crisis of Taste did uh, stem out of, or maybe more so was was even a reaction to that whole operation. And um, as far as a compulsion to start it, uh, I had some writing topics that had been fermenting. Uh, I, I was full of youthful vigor, uh, or really more so hubris. And uh, I've been considering starting something up in the print format for a while. Uh, I always liked writing. I always liked zines. Uh, I think they're a good way to sort of get your feet wet. Uh, they're a useful vehicle for working out ideas. Uh, they're cheap and uh, easy enough to do. And as you point out, um, there weren't there weren't a ton around um, at that time in this sort of area, um, at least not in print form. So. I just thought there was room for it, and I had a, a specific bent I wanted to pursue, and um, and so it was off to the races. And, uh, and and although I wouldn't claim to be the most conversant with uh, the zine culture of, of any era, I was certainly aware of the kind of heyday of 80s and 90s underground fanzines and um, the stuff that grew out of it, uh, whether it be like Force Exposure or Banana Fish, Mm-hmm. Or, or, I mean, I mean, like obviously naming the thing after uh, a record on Silbury's, uh, which itself began as a zine, uh, there certainly was a tradition to work out of, not only in the, the type of content covered, but also just in sort of channeling that character of uh, like the hyper-opinionated, obsessive, surly shut-in that's just like furiously scrawling these things in blood. <laughs> After you know, finally getting so fed up talking to the mirror, um, so that was certainly part of choosing to use the print format as opposed to uh, online as well. Right, right. Well, you, you know, you mentioned that the title comes from uh, a Silk Breeze release and uh, a Shadow Ring uh, album and song at that. Uh, so I'm guessing that's a pretty formative influence on you. But uh, I'm wondering, you know, more so if you found that title uh, to be somehow indicative or suggestive of the work that you would be covering and I guess by that I mean that the focus wasn't going to be so much uh, conventional music at all or or suggesting that music was somehow dead and and wrapped up and put in a coffin but that it pointed towards an area of sound for sound's sake if you will uh uh, yeah I mean I I think there's certainly some truth in in all that um I mean of course there's there was an appreciation for the band uh the record and the song um, but it was also a deliberate decision made um, because of what those words convey. The thing really started, uh, the, the first piece I actually sat down and typed out, it was uh, like the first early days of uh, 2010, and I was uh, you know, I was at my parents' home from uh, college over winter break uh, with nothing much to occupy my time. And uh, in, the, in the first decade of the 21st century, it had just come to a close, and you know, I've been seeing all these, you know, the kind of best of lists that are always up at that time of year. 
And then because it was also the end of the decade, there was all this musing on uh, on sort of the last 10 years of music en masse. And it just seemed like, like such a pointless exercise to me, and a really like archaic project to sort out, okay, like what are the masterpieces of the early 21st century? And I, I think it's too difficult to judge that sort of thing with such a short vantage point um, in the first place. But it's also like... Um, on one hand, uh, it's like, sure, where where are they? Um, you know, there is no white light, white heat. Uh, there's not, you know, another green world. There's not even something on the order of, like, homotopy to Marie. Um, but, but then why should there be? Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that important? So I wrote this, uh, you know, basically it just kind of ended up being little more than ill-advised, uh, kind of satirical rant in character uh, because in addition to just sort of mocking the idea of the masterpiece, also kind of wanted to uh, take a jab at all these like, puffed-up sync pieces on these websites with corporate ads all over them, and, you know, they're talking about so-called underground music, and the whole proposition just angered me so much. So I, I wrote this thing about how the past decade, um, meaning the years, you know, 2000 2010, uh, was the worst decade in the history of music, uh, modern music and sort of bemoaning that fact, uh, but also suggesting that maybe there was a silver lining and a, a freedom inherent in that, and an opportunity to kind of move away from the fallacy of the masterful artistic statement and all this serious business and just like kick a little dirt around. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, like to, to consider uh, you know someone with a tape recorder, drunk in their kitchen, just you know shuffling objects around and laughing hysterically at the inanity of it all, or whatever, to consider that some sort of, like, masterful brushstroke, on one hand, is it's a bit ludicrous, but it's also what I like, and it's by no means lesser than anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe that we're all on equal footing here, so, you know, kind of just an attempt to say, like, you know, let's get over this idea of the masterpiece, uh, shut the damn chest as as the lyric goes, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, of course, like several years on now, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't agree with, uh, a lot of what was written there. Uh, I was in my early twenties and, um, and I had mentioned, you know, the, the hubris, uh, but, but I really thought I, I knew a lot more than I did, uh, as you so often do at that age. Um, uh, but doing the, doing the zine, it really actually, uh, helped shift my focus to things that were going on around me rather than being so dead set on hating everything current, um, which was kind of a rut I was in at the time. So that was a nice outcropping of it. Right. Well, let's kind of build from that then. How did your experience um, in doing the zine then carry over into you wanting to start up Crisis of Taste then? Um, yeah, well, as I said, like Crisis of Taste, in a way, it grew out of the zine. Uh, in the most practical sense, I, I simply didn't have time to do it anymore. Um, or rather, I had been itching to start a label. Um, I suppose putting music in his coffin wasn't enough of a financial strain anymore. And um, and I wanted to put some, some stuff out, that, and I simply couldn't manage to do both at the same time. Um, but it also, I mean, put, put the music in his coffin didn't make sense to me anymore. Uh, my, my taste had changed so drastically in the three years since starting. Uh, I mean, again, I mean, I'm 20, 21 when I, when I threw this thing together. And that, that's certainly a period uh, where a lot of people are, you know, exploring different areas. And um, it just, 
you know, by, by the last issue, people would send things in for review, uh, you know, I'd get promo material uh, fairly regularly. And the stuff was just, you know, so often, I mean, it was, it was never, you know, where my head was at. And I felt an obligation to write about it and to write about it uh, honestly. Um, but the whole thing, you know, because I wasn't, you know, into some of this material, the whole thing really, really did start to get kind of nasty. Um, I know I don't look back on it often, but every once in a while, you know, I'll, you know, be uh, cleaning up and, you know, run, run across an issue and crack it open and, you know, I'll see something and just think like, wow, that was like really mean-spirited. And again, you can chalk it up to the folly of youth and, um, uh, you know, just, just, just being young. But again, you know, there comes a point where it's like, how many times can you complain about the same thing? All this, like, post-goth, pagan industrial dance music or whatever, mm-hmm. with, like, edgy fashion and stuff. Yeah, I mean, there comes to a point where it's just, like, enough already. Uh, you know, we get it. Yeah. Um, so the thing started to become a parody of itself, and the character um, got to be a bit uh, crusty, in my view. <laughs> um, and so, I, I mean, I, I figured it was just time to give it a rest, and, and also, uh, I guess I figured, like, you know, might as well focus on things you actually enjoy, uh, you know, there's no sense uh, wallowing in the mire. Uh, but still, I mean, two years on, I haven't mellowed in the slightest. Um, still constantly annoyed, <laughs> nonplussed by what I perceive as, as arrogant artwork being made and celebrated. But I didn't want it to be so malicious right. and, and you know, kind of, again, kind of crusty anymore. Um, so I thought, you know, better to work out my frustration uh, through art, um, you know, sound work or whatever. Uh, rather than in the writing. Um, there's still the reviews for the distro, and I do put a lot of effort into those. Um, and there's a critical element there, but really the stuff that I aim to release, um, I mean, we're only one release in, and you know the second one's uh, right around the corner, but with the stuff I release and in particular, the stuff that I actually play on, I, I really do want there to be a, a critical component to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's sort of, uh, there's, there's a depth to it, um, you've really got to look for it and kind of tease it out. And there's also a focus on confusion and what you might call a lot of playful ruses uh, mm-hmm. at work. Um, because I, I, I like work that confuses, that is composed of um, elements, uh, incongruities, one might call dull or commonplace out of context, um, because that's the stuff of life. Right. Uh, it's not about authenticity or purity or anything, but I do have a concern for this kind of uh, art of the everyday, um, you know, working out of that tradition and sort of uh, a bleeding new material out of that setup. Right, right. Well, let's talk about some of the stuff that you picked out here. We, we played a block of music to start off the show, and I wonder if, if you want to just address what you played and why you selected those. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, the first thing off was, uh, I, I guess the name I can't, uh, actually say on air, but so we'll, uh, we'll say it's the slug effers, <laughs> uh, with the last thing we just heard. Um, in many ways, just like the perfect band to me, um, rough hewn, negative, smart, uh, as, as the quote from Johan Kugelberg on the, uh, height sticker, uh, which, which I think originally comes from an ugly things article. But uh, but as the the hype sticker on this uh, CD case uh, states, it's uh, intelligent in a scary, 
vicious <laughs> bullying kind of way. Right. Um, I, I don't always agree with uh, Mr. Kugelberg's opinions, but I think that that sums it up uh, pretty well. Um, it's yeah, just really forward-looking material, uh, sort of in that stumbling mass of sound, uh, with like the walls of this like, infrastructure are so stressed by the sheer weight of all these ideas flying around in all these different directions. It's not, not quite breaking. Um, and they're just so, like hindered by their lack of technical means, but uh, it just makes it better to me. Right, right. Uh, and then, like, Tell Me Who You Are, uh, the, the track that we uh, that we actually played, I mean, it's just so like, corny for like an interview piece I couldn't resist. <laughs> um, but it actually does resonate with me. Uh, the most prominent lyrics you can make out are, I used to be a hippie, sorry. I used to be a punk, how dull. I used to be a straight, oh dear. I used to live in sin, oh no. And I mean, I can relate to that. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I used to be a punk, and it was dull. Uh, but, but also, uh, like what it is is the the entire uh, being of this band is a, a refutation, it's a negation, and it's defining itself in negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like I used to be this, I'm not anymore. They never they never really get around to saying what they are at the current moment. Right. Um, I mean, it does all kind of break down to this like manic shouting of you know I'm I'm one of you, I belong. You know the guy doesn't really believe himself, and it's you know it's kind of mocking the whole idea of uh, of scenes, and um, and so yeah, it's just sort of uh, like taking that that punk nihilism a step further, and really kind of celebrating it, mm-hmm. um, which has been very inspiring uh, and informed a lot of what I look for in music and art for uh, a long time now. Mm-hmm. We heard some from uh, Moolah as well in front of that. Yes, Moolah. Um, yeah, this is a very odd record, and um, you know, I include it primarily because, um, I mean, obviously I mean, I'm a fan of it, um, but uh, what's appealing besides just uh, the, the bizarre sounds contained within is how completely out of time and out of place it is. Moolah were a, uh, a one-off, one-shot band, uh, the work of Walter Burns and Maurice Robertson in the early 70s, uh, and the main tag of this record uh, always gets is that it's like a Krautrock record made in New York State. Right. Um, and it's very puzzling in that way. Um, because, I mean, like, that's, that's a handy way to sum it up, but it really, really kind of does, you, you kind of do wonder, like, where were they coming from with this stuff? Um, you know, they didn't really have any contemporaries in the kind of, like, post-hippie, pre-punk underground of the day. And... Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of, like, mysterious in that way. I mean, it's got a very, like, loose vibe, uh, very hermetic, um, you know, like, basement-style uh, feel to it on the order, something like Madrigal right. or uh, some of the LAFMS roster. And I think its closest compatriot, um, sonically, is, is maybe, like, the friend sound, uh, all that bizarre offshoot um, of uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Um, uh, but really, I mean, like, you know, I just wanted to include it because... While it does have a very sealed-off, kind of introverted atmosphere, um, which does hold appeal to me, uh, what's really intriguing is just how it's not beholden to any one movement or time. Uh, just a sonic curiosity and uh, one for the ages. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, and then we kicked it all off um, with uh, Lars Gunnar Bowden and Bengt Emil Johnson's Semicolon. Um, which is a really fantastic record and I think a nice way to set things up uh, for a few reasons. One of them being uh, that it has has a lot of elements of sound, uh, what you might call sound art. I really like uh, this album 
is more of a radio play. I think it was made for, for Swedish radio. Uh, Odin, I'm, I'm familiar with his record Clouds on Flekigen, uh studio that's associated with a lot of uh, continental European sound poetry. And Johnson, I only knew from a track from uh, Review OU, Al Morgan uh, compendium of work uh, associated with Henry Chopin's OU magazine. Right. This one's a little different than, than either of their solo work. And I included it um, just because there's a lot of techniques that were quite novel at the time. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of tape manipulation, um, a lot of like layered vocals, uh, which we didn't hear on this track in particular, but um, yeah, they're in there. And, uh, and and it sounds like a lot of maybe sculptures being played, um, almost uh, Harry Bertoia type type thing. Okay. Um, but the sounds were, um, you know, they were they were very new. I mean, this is like even you know, this is 1966 when this record came out. And so a lot of these sounds um, were new, and they have this kind of late modernist feel, and the whole thing. Um, it's quite you know, it's a very strange sounding record, but it kind of has like a hint of optimism to it. Um, you know, there's no dark undertones, and I thought that that ties in nicely with uh, with COG because you know, I mean, I, I know it's like an uphill battle trying to promote honest, non-commercial artwork of any kind, uh, but it's also it's also all we've got, um, or it's all I've got, right. and um, you know, you had to believe in something, I suppose. Right, right. Uh, and, and then also, so the, the copy I have is a reissue. Um, as I said, it originally came out in uh, 1966, but my copy is uh, on uh, Paradigm Disc, a uh, reissue that came out a few years ago. And uh, I just want to say something about Paradigm, because um, I was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an excellent label. And I was telling you, David, uh, when we were trying to uh, set up a time to talk, I had gone to see Adam Bowman and Clive Graham perform recently. And uh, Clive being um, the individual who runs Paradigm, and so that was a really excellent performance. And also there was something um, that I wanted to mention because I was, I was talking to Clive at the show. Um, yeah, I, I introduced myself and telling them, you know, oh, I'm a, a big fan of the label and so forth. And, uh, and he was very nice, but he was kind of surprised. And his, his reaction was just kind of like, well, no, that, that's really great uh, because there aren't many of them out there. And that really struck me because, um, you know, on one hand, I mean, it's like Paradigm, the discography is really top-notch. Um, and it's not something that gets a lot of lip service right now. And, you know, we went on, you know, talking, and, and Clyde mentioned how it's kind of hard to move units these days, and, you know, it struck me because, like, on, you know, you, you have, like, with all the prominence of social media, it's like, if you're not constantly doing doing things um, and documenting it, then, you know, it's like you're irrelevant. People forget about you. But uh, here's a guy, uh, you know, he's, like, the first person to reissue the voice records uh, for us. Ross Byrne and Karina Kyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did the Anal Magic record, doing this stuff in like 1998, and you know, way ahead of the game. And now he can't move units uh, because he doesn't really try and play the game. And uh, and afterwards, you know, I'm kind of joking uh, with a friend. Um, we were in a bar in New York after the show, shooting the breeze, and uh, kind of came up like, uh, oh, wh- why weren't the city's uh, experimental elite? Why weren't they uh, out in droves for the show? I mean, there were, people, there were people there. It wasn't empty or anything. Um, but it's just kind of like we're going on, like, why isn't this really high-quality stuff uh, get more play? And, you know, I came to the conclusion that, uh, you know, it, it kind of has to do with the fact that it's not sexy. It's not glamorous work. Um, and actually, in a, in, a, in a funny way, it kind of reminded me of a Bill, a Bill Bruford quote uh, from this, like, BBC prog rock documentary 
Um, this is like a bit of an aside, but it's uh, it's a thing where there's a documentary setting up a theory of how the prog rock boom came about in England and all this, um, you know, end of the 60s and all these, like, these young, very talented musicians of that era who were, like, classically trained maybe. Um, <clears throat> they were young and they didn't want to play, like, standard time signature rock and roll because that was, like, too easy for them. Um, and, you know, that goes in a brief, gives a real brief mention about how some of these people... Um, gravitated to like kind of like post jazz and the, the birth of like the free improv uh, sort of movement, and then it cuts it cuts to uh, to Bruford, who's you know he's he's like a very talented drummer, and he also uh, he has a very like, funny and blunt way of speaking, and he says something along the lines of you know like any any young musician with a pulse, uh, you know would rather be playing rock music rather than being spontaneous music ensemble. And uh, and then the thing cuts. It goes on to talk about how this generation was like, you know, they were around the age, uh, generally where they're kind of awakening as like sexual beings, and in a humorous way, kind of suggesting, uh, and you know, it's kind of like an antiquated idea, and it's not meant to be like sexist or anything. This isn't like particular to males, but um, you know, it's kind of like playfully making the little connection that's like, well, you're not going to pick up girls playing this serious experimental <laughs> right. music, right? Um, and I thought that was really funny and kind of fitting. Um, of course, Prague is probably, uh, you know, thought to be just as nerdy now, uh, like these <laughs> days. And, and I listen to as much Prague rock uh, from that era as I do, you know, avant-garde music, um, past or present. But I just thought it was kind of funny and telling, uh, summing up how if the work uh, is just focused on the sound, it's not trying to push all these other angles, um, it can be pretty tough. Um and once in a while, everything uh, that's really good kind of breaks on through to the other side, gets some exposure, and that's that's great. For the most part, uh, this stuff is very marginal. And so talking with with Clive um, briefly, it, it, it kind of got me thinking about the work I tend to gravitate towards and what's really behind it, and you know, just kind of listening to things for their inherent value and not because they're associated with a scene or because there's something to gain um, outside of the the uh, just the pleasure from that listening to it gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this it, it burns a lot of people out, and and that's why so many of these labels kind of they, they start up and then they're gone within a couple of years, right. um, because it can be really difficult, and it only seems to get more difficult. And that's why I have so much respect for someone like Clive, um, who's just like you know, stuck it out, continues to make uh, really high quality work on his own terms, um, because it's clear that he cares about it. Right, and, and all I would hope, uh, my only goal, goal for COT is to uh, very humbly sit within that tradition and um, and take my knocks as they come to me. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to set up some uh, more music here. We're going to start off with something from Church Shuttle here that uh, originated from your area, and I think we'll just jump into it, and then we'll come back and uh, talk about it in the next little interview break.
So with, with Crisis of Taste, you're, you're not aiming to be uh, this massive distro that carries a bunch of you know, artists and titles just because they're in vogue. You operate what I think kind of like more along the lines of, say, like a swill radio or a volcanic tongue where you stock the stock that you carry fits into this more personalized, cohesive aesthetic that you kind of already alluded to in that first segment. Um, but I, just how would you describe what it is that you're interested in? Or what it is that you're interested in carrying with the distro? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's spot on. I mean, you know, um, uh, on, on one hand, I mean, you know, I, I don't have, you know, kind of an interest in being this, running this huge operation um, simply because I don't have the financial muscle um, to pull that off. Uh, so that's a factor. Um, but there's also, I mean, I don't really think um, there's much of a need for it in, in the U.S. I mean, you know, I like a lot of stuff and I, and I buy records and some archival work on a fairly regular basis, but I'm not going to carry all of it because I think, you know, particularly, you know, in the States, I mean, we have, you know, large distributors with uh, impeccable reputations. Um, you know, you always force exposure to use a Tron TVM house. Um, so if people want this stuff, you know, they, they can they can get it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they don't need somebody else you know, doing it to a, a lesser degree of uh, quality and proficiency. Um so, you know, running a smaller, more like a, a tighter ship, you know, makes more sense. And I, I have heard things before, uh, you know, I, I've read glib comments online, uh, not directed at me necessarily, but referencing the sort of ineffectuality of the uh, hobby distro. And, um, but, you know, maybe there's some truth to that, but I think like anything else, uh, there's a good way to go about it and a not so good way. Mm-hmm. And if I'm privy to some fairly discreet areas of sound, um, and I'm not, you know, things that don't get distribution elsewhere, I'm not all that well connected, but if I do catch wind of something, someone contacts me with a, you know, small run release, and um, I think it's good, and I think it deserves to be heard by the very small group of people uh, with similar tastes as me, um, then I, I do believe there's a utility in that. Right. Um, and that's not all, okay. I mean, you know, there's, there's some larger press stuff in there. It's not, there's no hard, hard-line agenda set. Um but I do get excited by new work um, that you just can't grab anywhere else, um, because I, at least that provides me a reason to exist. Right. I, would, I would hope. Right. Right. And uh, and I try and I try, I try and take chances too, because I think that's important. You know, looking back over the years, can can you pinpoint a certain time uh, in your own listening habits where you became more receptive to or interested in sounds that weren't necessarily uh, musical per se? And I guess for lack of a better analogy, were there certain albums or artists that you recall served as sort of a gateway drug into this other area of sound art or noise or non-music, whatever you want to call it? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I, I think it's a good question, David, and uh, I, it's uh, certainly pertinent to the topics at hand. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that my answer will be um, uh, terribly surprising or, or different from a lot of others, but, uh, but but one of the few things uh, that you know, a few artists that I remember really having like a strong reaction uh, uh, to, and in, in terms of just being like totally confounded by sound, um, was kind of like the earliest White House material. Right. Right. And uh, and you know, for some brief context, yeah, you know, I mean, I was fortunate enough to grow up into an, uh, grow up in an area which uh, you know, for its size, uh, had you know, I mean. Well, it had you couldn't overstate the importance of this. Like one of the best record stores um, in in the country, um, very active DIY punk scene, and adjacent to that, and these things did rub up uh, rub up against each other because you know it's a small area and there's only so many weirdos around. 
Um, but there's a very active noise scene with like one of like the preeminent venues for that kind of decadent American sounds that are really taken off in uh, the early mid 2000s. And so you'd have you get you get like pedestrian deposit, Imperium, and Wolf Eyes, um, like you know the most like popular mid 2000s noise artists. Mm-hmm. A lot of them would come you know to the middle of nowhere Pennsylvania on one of the weekend nights of their tour. Uh, because the place basically had a reputation for, like, first-rate debauchery. <laughs> and I was a little young uh, to partake in all that, but eventually I started, you know, I started going to these things uh, after being pretty well-versed in punk rock, and it was like, um, you know, I mean, this was just worlds away from the kind of basement shows I'd been to. Um, and so that pretty much wiped the slate clean, and nothing seemed all that alien uh, after seeing bands of that ilk at an impressionable age. Uh, which is why I remember all the more vividly uh, my first exposure to White House. Uh, you know, I, I'd kind of known the name for years, um, but we're like, you know, we're right on the cusp of like when downloading and blogs really took off, and um, and so I had just gotten like the Susan Lolly, the first reissue of uh, Birth Death Experience, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I got out of the record store in town and threw it on the turntable when I got home. I couldn't, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, it really was one of the, the few times I remember thinking, like, this stuff is not music, not really knowing what to make of it at all. And, uh, you know, and I, I had seen some of these noise bands before, and I had, you know, I had some of the records, uh, but this was so different. Because um, there's really nothing uh, to grab onto. I mean, the, there was always kind of these, like, rock hang-ups uh, with some of the early 2000 noise music. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to knock any of this. You know, I, I still enjoy some of that stuff to this day, but early White House um, and, and Birth Death in particular, well, I don't think it's been its best record by a long shot. Um, uh, there's just kind of nothing there. And I mean, compositionally, it's, it's actually quite brilliant. But for the most part, it's just like these odd static textures, some vocals. Uh, it's really not harsh in the way I was accustomed to, or you know, certainly in the way I was expecting it to be. And it doesn't even have much of that kind of lurid camp element just yet. Um, that a certain lot is drawn drawn to just because it's uh, obscene or whatever. Um, so it's just you know really thin, tense, bad sound, and um, and I didn't particularly like it. Uh, but I kind of you know I knew there was something there. Um, you know, and just kind of uh, kept coming back to to it, and you know eventually it stuck. And um, you know just kind of dug dug into uh, you know the kind of things you know looked, looked into like whatever influenced William Bennett, and just kind of dug deeper uh, from there. It's it's interesting how those records that you find initially like really off putting, but that you have to really spend time oh, yeah. with, are the ones that become like the lasting ones. You know what I mean? I think of so yeah, many yeah, records. Yeah, I mean, are, they certainly they, they stick in your mind at least. I right. Mean, yeah. I mean, I think of like even like Beefheart's Trout Mask replica. I just was I hated that record, and now of course <laughs> you know you come back. Yeah. It's like it's such a touchstone, of course. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I always like uh, what's it called. Um, Thief of the Milk, that was, you know, it was his first record and the first one I heard. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was, like, what we really like. So I was kind of like, that, that, that's, like, not that difficult of a record. Uh, it's really good, but it's not like, you know. So, like, when then you hear, like, um, Trying to Mess Repel, it's just, like, it's, like, so, you know, so disorienting. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's. That one, that, that, that's up there too. Right. Well, let's set up uh, the next. Uh, or I shouldn't say set up. We should talk about the the tracks that we played right before this. Uh, we we ended up with something from Korea, the Korea Undock Group, I believe is what they're called, and I know that you carry some of that stuff uh, through the distro. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. The, the, so the thing um, he played is actually um, an, another, it's a, like a pseudonym under the uh, Korean Doc umbrella, uh, which is uh, like a brand new micro label uh, just planting its roots. Uh, it's the work of Samuel Neal uh, from Winnipeg, Canada. And um, and he was a guy, you know, who just kind of contacted me out of the blue, asking if I would socks and stuff, uh, which, you know, I mean, if you run a distro, you know, that's kind of a common occurrence. Um, and uh, and usually, I mean, I'll, I'll give everything sent uh, to me a listen because I like taking chances on things that are that I haven't heard. But, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, um, I mean, because I don't have the money to stock everything and because I don't, you know, I have particular taste and, you know, not everything's, you know, in, in, to my liking, so you know, I'll, I'll respectfully uh, decline more often than not. Um, but, but Sam's work uh, was really great and really sounded. It was exciting to me because it kind of sounded just off in its own world, and just the kind of thing you know that, I, that I'm kind of looking to carry. And um, and so it was great. And I asked him, you know, if he had anything kind of unreleased or anything coming up, and uh, you know, he sent me this track, um, which I really enjoy. I think it's right in line. With the first Korean dot group uh, release, um, which uses piano loops and uh, some other odds and ends, and um, I said about the tape, you know, and writing about it um, for distro, it kind of sits in that like SEMA, Robert Haig, um, use some of the organum material, mm -hmm. that kind of wheelhouse. Um, yeah, so that's all good. Uh, and then um, right before that, uh, we had um, Matt Haggerty. Uh, who is a friend of mine living here in Philly, um, and this is brand new as well. Uh, Matt's a really great guy, and um, you know we we talk about music often. You know, formed a, uh, a friendship out of that, and uh, and he's got a very particular taste as well, and is um, again kind of you know off in his own world, doesn't really kind of bother with these scenes much, and um, I, I didn't even know actually. I literally just found out a few weeks ago. Um, you know, we were kind of, we were, we were talking over some beers and, um, you know, he, he just kind of mentioned like, uh, oh, yeah, I've been, I've been working on some, some music and I knew he had excellent taste. So whatever he was doing was probably going to be, uh, of a high quality. And, um, I was, I was correct in that regard. Uh, I positioned it right after, uh, the blue chemise, uh, Mark Gomes, uh, who runs Greedy Ventilator, um, out of Melbourne, Australia, another, um, like, and pretty much like brand new micro label. Um, because I think they both have interesting takes on electronic music and are very different from each other, um, but are, are also uh, different from a lot of other things you know currently happening within that realm. Uh, Matt's track it's more of of a song. Uh, you could certainly you know you could think of it as a song. It's got an ebb and a flow, mm -hmm. and um, you know kind of mining from that more crowd electronic uh, zone of like you know, mid period cluster. Right. Dream, dream, harmonia, that sort of thing, shrinking it down to a more kind of homespun sound. Uh, but Mark, while his stuff does, uh, you know, I, the things he's put out in the on his first tape do kind of function like songs. Um, it's a bit more this track in particular. While I would hesitate to call it like minimal electronics, um, I don't think that's quite right. But there is, there's not a whole lot going on. Uh, not not comprised of many elements. And it doesn't go for the jugular, but a kind of easy payoff. Um, I think a lot of current electronic music that I, I hear sort of in passing, uh, that's maybe a little bit more beat-based, mm -hmm. uh, kind of has those elements. So 
those are two guys just kind of busting out of the gate right now. Right. And uh, I look forward to hearing more from them uh, very much. And then we also had uh, an anonymous tape, uh, no artist for an upcoming release on uh, Bitrine. I'm told it's a soundtrack work, and uh, I'm not at liberty to divulge uh, any more information than that. <laughs> right. Uh, it follows in the footsteps of the first anonymous No Artist Tape on Vitrine, um, which is one of my favorites in the catalog thus far. And uh, it has sort of like, there's a, there's a thread of speech, uh, disembodied voice running throughout. Um, so the releases are, you know, they're somewhat related in that way. And they also share a dark humor, uh, kind of playing around with this uh, kind of weighty subject matter in a mischievous way. Uh, by that token, uh, it's very much in line with the anonymous uh, uncredited tapes on Comorg and Broken Flag, um, in particular the series of, uh, of soundtrack tapes that Gary Mundy was behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the sonic environment, in the habits is uh, very similar to you know to that kind of uh, cream of uh, early power electronics as well, uh, although I wouldn't necessarily call it a, an homage. Uh, and just speaking on Vitrine in general... Um, it's obviously uh, a label that Crisis of Taste has close ties with. Uh, I think Alan and I both share a lot of interests and disinterests, and uh, we get on pretty well uh, because of that. It's worth noting um, that Alan has really helped me, and this is um, this is a bit of an aside, but Alan, along with people like Graham and Scott, um, have really helped me uh, to realize that you can take um, your work seriously, but not yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's a big thing people get hung up on. Uh, you know, I notice, you know, in certain circles, I notice this kind of distasteful trend, uh, this kind of trick people try and use whereby pretending to be aloof, um, that, that somehow uh, makes them more humble. And uh, I, I just don't buy it at all. I think some people, you know, spend more time on what they do. It's not necessarily a sign of quality. But if you're making anything, um, even just for yourself, without intending to give it a wide release, you care about it. Right, right. So this aloof attitude seems very disingenuous to me, and I think it's maybe you know perhaps in some cases a way of separating oneself from a lot of legitimately uh, pretentious artwork. Um, and, you know, among experimental and avant-garde, uh, you know, this kind of thing that's always going to be in there. Um, but I think it's just as pretentious to act like you're above caring. Um, as I said before, the audience for this stuff is marginal, um, so it's ridiculous to consider what you're doing as important. <laughs> Um, and in fact, that's probably the only thing that keeps me sane most days, but I, I do care about it deeply, um, because this is a huge part of my life. Uh, not, not my, my own work specifically, but the music and the artwork, uh, that I enjoy and the conversation around it plays a big role in my life. Right. Um, so I do take it seriously, and I don't think that that simple fact makes one pompous. Um, and oftentimes it just kind of comes off to me like people think they're they're so cool and in the know and have such infallible taste that they don't have to work for anything. Um, and frankly, it just comes off as lazy to me. So that's that's my little rant on that. <laughs> and uh, I should mention, you had one more track in there. We let off with something from Church Shuttle, which is uh, Chris. Church Shuttle, who, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, from your area, Chris, but I don't think he's there anymore, right? All gone? Um, He's not, no, yeah, Chris, I, I met Chris, he was living in Philly um, uh, for a while, uh, he just recently, um, just about a month ago, maybe a little bit more than a month ago, um, moved uh, back to Detroit, which is uh, where I think he's originally from, And um, but yeah, I got this tape from him uh, right before he had uh, skipped town for Greener Pastures, 
and um, I think a lot of the material. I really like this. I mean, Chris, you know, he's like involved in like All Gone. Um, he you know, plays in a lot of bands. He's very like kind of active um, in that way. But um, this uh, solo church material stuff is really. Uh, I've really been enjoying it. Um, a lot of the work has vocals on it, and is is just kind of a joke. I mean, I, I think it's like yeah, I've made the the kind tie in before. Um, sort of like power electronics meets uh, stand-up comedy uh, is a line I've used before, um, which is, like, great because, you know, I mean, Chris is a really funny guy, and I think power electronics, the term, it started out as a joke, um, which seems to be lost on a lot of people uh, these days. Um, and, and you'll get these kind of, uh, these, like, noise jocks uh, making this, like, overzealous work, um, not really in on, on their own joke, and Chris is just kind of having fun with it. And um, this tape in particular... Uh, the excerpt that we heard from from it isn't really um, it's, it's instrumental and it's a little bit less uh, ag- aggressive um, kind of has more of like a home taper vibe to it um, it's a redolent of, uh, to me of, of stuff like maybe a Gog or Minoy mm-hmm. uh, or kind of like street tape manipulation uh, where the sources are a bit uh, masked and uh, just, you know it's not just like screeching feedback processed vocals um, and maybe it you know, kind of reminds me of current acts like Posset, Spoils and Relics, uh, the more kind of like freewheeling side of uh, electroacoustic improvisation. Sure. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really great tape, and, you know, again, kind of representative of uh, what I find uh, exciting about um, current uh, sound work being, being made today. Right, well, we'll jump into uh, the next little segment of uh, music here, and it's this is going to be... Uh, something that's going to come out on Crisis of Taste, uh, the label, and it's an album that you played on. So we'll probably talk about this in a, in a little bit. So this is going to be something from uh, Vanity of the Tongue in a track called Perverts.
So not only is Crisis of Taste a, a small distro, uh, it's also the name, of course, of uh, the label that you started uh, to coincide with it. And so far you've put out just one tape of your own work. Uh, I guess what was the initial motivation behind starting the label? Were you just looking uh, for an outlet for your own material? Yeah, well, the, the label aspect, um, it's always been there. Um, as I said, I wanted to release some stuff back when Coffin uh, was still kicking around. Uh, had this grand idea of uh, focusing uh, a little more on um, maybe criticism by means of uh, music or sound work. So I thought, you know, why not throw my hand into the ring? Uh, I don't think I'll be doing more than a handful of releases any given year, um, but I wanted a platform to publish some uh, specific things and and also um, to work with a few other artists 
whose output I admire and who I think makes sense within this uh, hazy kind of framework I've developed for the thing. Mm-hmm. You have some forthcoming material in the works, uh, including your first vinyl release. Um, uh, what do you have planned for Crisis to, uh, of Taste uh, that you can mention at this point? And maybe we should talk about that first vinyl release, the, the Vanity of Tongues that we started off that set with. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So first up, uh, like I said, a couple couple things on on plan for vinyl. Um, first one being, uh, like you said, Vanity of the Tongue. Uh, this is an LP recorded. Um, and actually written and recorded several years ago. Um, initially, it's it's a long long story, but uh, you know we had some of this stuff recorded and, and sat on it for a while. We recorded everything. I think it turned out a lot better um, because of that. Actually, um, this one's really odd. I mean, I, I don't really know what people will make of it. Uh, I like it. It's uh, it's more of a concept um, without giving too much away. About taking sources um, that are. Uh, so these are, you know, these are original songs we wrote. It's me and uh, a friend of mine, Josh Stimok. Um These are uh, songs we wrote, uh, well, he wrote, and, uh, you know, taking the sources, um, they're more kind of traditional, um, perhaps even purposely banal, and reorganizing them in an effort to uh, kind of highlight that uh, banality mm-hmm. of the original source. Uh, only like half of it is really meant to be listened to and digested. Really, it's kind of uh, kind of a, a joke and an expensive one at that. Um, but it's uh, but it's very it's a very negative record, um, uh, kind of aggressive. And in that way, I think it's uncharacteristic of what I stock and what I'm likely to do in the future. Um, and it really is kind of one dimensional and direct. But I think it works uh, works to its favor in, in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost personal, even. I mean, you might. It's kind of addressing uh, some of the, hu- the hubris of, uh, of of my youth, uh, as I had spoken about uh, earlier, mm-hmm. um, using that to uh, new and productive ends. Um, the track uh, you just heard isn't on the LP. Actually, it's um, it's all it's all Josh uh, holding up the back end, and it was recorded during that ill-fated first session. So it was kind of you know suitable for this mix, though. It sets up uh, some of the. Uh, the stuff nicely, um, addressing directly, uh, as opposed to uh, obliquely, uh, which is more often the case with the things COT represents, some of the ideas um, on the other tracks uh, to expand upon. Um, And then the next thing is uh, from Remnants, uh, you heard an excerpt um, from a forthcoming uh, LP, uh, Remnants the solo project of Ryan Marino, uh, who's a tape artist and filmmaker currently working out of Brooklyn. And uh, he was the first person I contacted to actually do a release that I wasn't uh, personally involved in, didn't, didn't um, obtain with my own hand. And uh, I had you know, a number of people in mind, um, and I thought, like Ryan, I really enjoyed his work and noticed it was all exclusively done. Um, it's exclusively composed on tape, but it's also, he had only released things on tape, um, generally in pretty limited quantity. So I, I thought it'd be nice to get, get him like a larger press on release or on LP. Um, this being something you know, I'd want to purchase if I, if I wasn't doing it. And, right. and that's really, you know, what, what a label should be about at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I don't know this, uh, it might not end up in this version for the LP, um, this is like just sort of kind of like a demo. He's still working through this stuff, but gives a sense of where the material is headed. Um, 
kind of fatigued, unending cycle of, of growth and decay. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think Ryan, he, uh, he works with film, and I think there's a tie-in with his sound work because um, it does kind of, uh, it has like sort of that like hard focus and materiality to it, all these very grainy sounds. And it, uh, there's a, a, what you might call a filmic quality to the attention to uh, pacing and to uh, patience. Right. And, uh, and I, I just find his overall approach um, very refreshing. So um, I'm, I, I always get excited for new stuff that's coming out of, um, you know, that he's either doing with remnants or uh, his label eminent frequencies. Right. Yeah. So I'm very excited for um, to be doing this record. The last thing um, is uh, the last thing is Idea Fire Company. Um, this is something more recently locked down uh, within the last month or so. Um, I knew I knew right out of the gate that I wanted to do something with Scott um, at some point. Uh, you know, we just we've been in contact for a while, and uh, you know, I, I admire you know I'm a big fan of his, and you know, he had this material he'd sent uh, he sent me a while ago, and um, it was fantastic as is expected. So it's a pretty pretty easy decision to make. And, um, and, yeah, I mean, we kind of mentioned, uh, like, School Radio before, definitely kind of a, a big influence on, you know, an on-crisis of taste. And I don't really know that, you know, Scott probably, I mean, I could talk about what I admire, admire in him until I'm blue in the face. Uh, I don't really think anybody's left a, a bigger impression on my personal li- listening habits over the last several years. Um, and I learned, I've learned a lot from, you know, corresponding with him mm-hmm. and, uh, and listening to records he's played on. And uh, just reading the reviews on the Full Radio uh, website. Right. Um, so the track is, is that we heard is going to be on the LP. Um, we're maybe going to have that ready in like the first quarter of 2016. Okay. Yeah. It's a bit of a ways out. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe expect it around then if there's no pressing complications. <laughs> um, they also, Carla and Scott have um, an LP coming out uh, very soon on recital. Uh, who have already uh, they, they reissued a, a live disco tape and did Carla Carla Barecki's, uh fantastic solo piano record uh, around this time last year, and in um, the the track I chose um, you know in particular I mean you know, it's it's great on 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 one hand um, and there's actually there's actually more to it um, had to like kind of remove some of the content um, in the interest of time, but. Um, it does have a kind of, uh, I mean, it has a very, very fantastic performance from Carla. Also, again, kind of relates to that, like, perversion of sound um, I was saying that earlier. Since Music from the Impossible Saloon, uh, the uh, LPM Kai, a large aspect of um, Idea Fire Company's work has been these kind of, uh, like, curious chamber pieces where Carla will lay down this very nice, kind of ornate foundation usually on piano or keyboard and uh and scott just kind of comes over top and like this is all over it <laughs> corrupts the established palette of sound um there's a bit of a focus on like disruption and uh and although scott is very vocal about his disdain for uh free improvisation there's sort of like uh like an improv inbound uh at work right right and so those are two aspects um of the recent material i've really been drawn to uh, and of course, you know, I mentioned before with this very vague focus for Crisis of Taste, uh, I think a lot of uh, IFCO records, um, they fit in there because there's sort of a critical component to them. You can read into it if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's great to be doing something for them. 
Uh, they're very nice people, and uh, I'm excited for that one as well. Right, right. Well, let's get into some more music here. You, you had mentioned uh, your appreciation of Prague music, and uh, we'll open things up here with the uh, great French Prague band Magma here.
So you recently had one of your uh, pieces included on that uh, Nice Weather for War compilation that uh, Kai Records put out, and uh, Kai, of course, being run by former Shadow Ring member Graham Lampkin. So I imagine that that's got to be kind of uh, an interesting and gratifying experience for you to have this kind of come full circle in a sense with you know the zine and put the music in its coffin, and here you are being featured on this comp uh, that Graham put together. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was certainly, um, yeah, it, it, it was nice. Uh, uh, no, no pun intended. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was thrilled when Graham asked me. I mean, obviously, Kai's a label I respect and admire a great deal. Uh, a longtime fan of Graham's work, whether it be in the Shattering solo or the various offshoots uh, he's participated in over the years. Um, so that was great. I've, I've been in contact with uh, with Graham for a few years now, uh, very intermittently. I actually interviewed him for, it was originally slated to run in uh, negative guest list, because um, for a while, while I was doing Put the Music in its Coffin, I was also writing uh, for NGL until, uh, tragically, that publication ended um, with the untimely death of its editor. Um, so I ended up uh, publishing that interview in my thing. Um, you know, it was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, I talked with the guy who uh, who named the fanzine or whatever. But, uh, you know, we had a nice chat for that. Um several years ago and, you know, and keep, keep in touch on and off. And then when Crisis the Tapes finally got going uh, and the first solo tape was done, I sent him a copy and uh, he had some very nice comments about it. And, you know, I wrote a couple months later uh, with this idea for a compilation, um, sort of like an emerging artist type thing. And um, so we just kind of like took it from there. Um, and, yeah, but it's, you know, it's great to be, um, I mean, I, I really think that's a solid comp, and I like the focus of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are just really you know, starting to put their work out there, uh, just trying stuff out. It's not really making the case for, like, a scene at all, um, which I like, because I, I don't... I mean, I know some of the people on there, or have been in contact with some of them. Others, uh, I don't know at all. Um, but there's no, uh, there's no sort of kinship. I think we all do very different things, but there is a shared focus... Um, for just kind of trying stuff out, and not much of a care for, uh, for like finely, finely polished compositions. Right, right. So um, fine, fine company to be in, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have any other releases coming out or other material that you're currently working on then, from for, with your solo work? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, like uh, the wheels are always spinning. Uh, you know, I, I might be uh, like caught in a snowdrift uh, or a mud bank, um, but they're always they're always turning. Um, the main thing being worked on right now is uh, kind of stemming out of the piece you just heard. So that's an excerpt. Uh, this was originally slated for um, the Kai Comp, actually, uh, but it just got to be, like, so involved. Um, and the more I went over this material, the more I thought, like, this isn't really suitable for a comp. Um, probably be, like, a full-length release. Um, so just kind of, like, piecing that together now. It's, uh, it's kind of different. Um, it has, like, a vocal element. Um, it's not, I wouldn't call it sound poetry. Uh, there is a focus on like space, uh, a linguistical space, uh, sort of the edges of speech and, uh, and then like a physical space, uh, this improvised meandering between two addresses I was uh, occupying at the time and, uh, and like improvised actions within a defined border. It relates to some concerns I've been having, um, some procedural concerns, uh, you know, kind of with this whole, like, uh, piece of concrete or, like, amateur, like, field recording thing. Um, I don't, like, necessarily need to go into, but um, just 
kind of using using more of the uh, natural characteristics of sound um, without, you know, a lot of effects and a lot of gear trying to get away from that and not kind of use that as a crutch. And, um, and a reliance also on, on tape. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not dogmatic about these things or puritanical. I think, that, like, you know, there's, there's, there's at some chain in the link before release, you're going to have digitization, and, uh, and that doesn't bother me. I mean, most of the sounds are, you know, they're captured on, like, either my phone or, uh, or like, a, a cheap electronic uh, field recorder. So, um, you know, that doesn't bother me. But eventually it's kind of bounced down to tape, and I think, um, you know, that, that works well to kind of, like, although it's not, like, a necessarily um, a main focus of mine, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm hesitant to put, you know, too much of my stamp on the thing. And what, what's nice about tape is it kind of just, like, will inherently warp things and um, on you. And there's just, like, uh, there's just nothing you can do about it. And you just kind of have to, like, kind of let it roll. And um, and sometimes, like, nice things uh, can happen uh, that you weren't planning for uh, as a result of that. Like, for the, for the track, actually, that we played, um, it kind of... Uh, it, it, we were like recording on the uh, third floor of my friend's building and uh, we had, you know, it was in the summer, it was a really hot day, had everything kind of closed up because the tapes were pretty quiet and uh, they just started kind of slowing down and, and like suffering from heat stroke and I thought like, this is great and I didn't even know it, you know, I wasn't even planning for this and um, it just led the material kind of right to where um, I wanted it to be and, uh, and although, you know, I wouldn't dogmatically adhere to anything like chance operations, um, I think, you know, you do have to leave a little room for that. And uh, the tape kind of just, like, takes takes care of that nicely um, um, on its own. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that's, like, you know, you heard a small excerpt, um, but you in, do intend to expand it into a full-length release at some point. Um, and I'd like for it to be an LP. I don't, you know, it's just, there's a lot of work that still has to go into it. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But, um but that's that track, and, and just kind of going on from there. I mean, I really don't know where this stuff is heading, um, the silver work in particular. Uh, but the main thing, the main uh, point is, like, well, I think it's important to retain, you know, some core principles. Uh, yeah, for instance, again, you know, only kind of, like, I only want to use these natural, unaffected source materials, um, you know, for now. I mean, not, you know, I don't want to be, like, running things through a pedal or using electronics. Um, you know, who knows? I might, you know, might, might change my mind tomorrow. But that's kind of like, um, you know, what I'm uh, set in right now. I do think it's important. You know, you got to retain a bit of a focus, but uh, you know, just not being too dogmatic about the thing, because um, you can you you create an uh, an aeration uh, that way, and it doesn't tie down the work to one specific tradition. It makes the thing less rigid, and uh, and I kind of do just I, I you know I prefer things that are. Uh, they're sort of messy um, because, uh, again, that's how life is. Um, so I think it's only natural uh, to, to work in that way. Let's talk about the the tracks that you had picked out um, uh, prior to this uh, little talk segment here because I know that those also are artists and, and the way they work is sort of uh, has a connection to your own solo work. Yeah, yeah. So we heard, um, started things off with uh, Magma, um, which is, uh, I think it's a fine introduction to the solo work. Um, and, uh, you know, this particular Magma track, anyway, I kind of set things up in a uh, just circuitous fashion. Um, 
doesn't have much to do with the fact that it, you know I, I mean, I'm quite fond of mag of magma on the whole, um, but I wouldn't really draw uh, much of a connection or influence there. The main reason uh, leading off with this track is that um, although it's not from a bootleg, and then it's kind of has really kind of has that quality about it. It's like a cheap pressing, very hissy, uh, put out by Tapioca, um, which is the label that bought out Pole. Um, and, and, you know, Tapioca, as far as I can tell, have pretty much universally egregious quality control. <laughs> and uh, and for this reason, this is kind of a divisive uh, release among Magma fans. But it does have that kind of bootleg quality about it, and, um, and uh, it relates to my own work because, like, with the, the kind of shoddiness kind of grime, it, uh, I think it does something to the sound. It kind of warps it. And this is something I find important. I, I've spoken um, a lot about uh, reacting to what is going on around you rather than uh, just sort of creating anything uh, out of the ether. And, um, and I, it relates to what I do solo because I see, you know, I see a trend sometimes with this kind of soundscape and field recording material um, and while I don't necessarily find find it offensive, and I like some of uh, of that material a great deal, there are aspects of it I'm at odds with or questionable about, um, because a lot of it seems to be predicated upon the notion that the use of this, uh, this unprocessed, these naturally occurring sounds, um, which again I'm certainly drawn to, and I, I apply a lot um, to my own work. Um, but I often get the sense that a lot of this work is predicated on the notion of the sacredness of these sounds, um, that using field recordings rather than what you might call more traditional instrumentation is uh, imbuing within the work a sense of purity. And I just don't agree with that at all. Uh, I think the second that you capture something in the tape, you alter it. Um, it ceases to be as it was in time, quote-unquote, naturally occurring. Um, so I don't think there's anything sacred about these sounds um, and using an unedited uh, natural source material. And for this reason, I think it's only logical to take it to that kind of extreme point, explore how you can use um, those kind of sounds in different contexts and different ends, kind of like kind of muddy them up a little. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for that reason, I get a lot of mileage out of uh, bootlegs and something like this uh, really poorly pressed uh, Magma record. <laughs> uh, we followed that up. Uh, we followed up Magma with Trevor Wishart, uh, who is, um, he's really just, uh, well, he's certainly not all that obscure, um, and that's not really the point of any of this, but I find him to be one of the best and strangest composers to come out of that sort of uh, like post-Cajian school, if you'd like. Uh, it's a fascinating record, and he's a fascinating figure. Uh, he's a theorist and has written a great deal about um, sonic art and, and does these very complex compositions from voice, both animal and human, and, uh, and the compositional method of this record veers a lot towards um, recording improvisations to tape and then com- composing, you know, what are these pretty, um, they're pretty kind of like, they're kind of hairy and, and fast-moving and uh, complex. Uh, and, re- you know, recording this improvised, in this improvised manner and then uh, going back and touching up the fine ends at a later date on tape. That's something I've, uh, I've learned a lot from this record and a few others. It's a good method, and I think it adds a very odd tension. Because while things may sound random, they kind of come off, uh, you know, they kind of come out of nowhere uh, at first glance. If you kind of, if you listen carefully, and I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that there's like a right way or a wrong way 
to listen to anything I do. Uh, I, I mean, I really don't care how it happens, <laughs> as long as someone's listening. Right. Um, but, uh, but, but if you do listen closely and repeatedly, you, know, you start to catch on to um, an organization, uh, it's, but it's loose, and uh, you know, there's still room to play around with in there, and it, it really relates to, um, you know, not surprisingly, the most accurate account of the first solo tape um, that I saw was from Scott uh, Faft. Uh, he mentioned the sort of um, using classical avant-garde strategies, using them as a foundation for the thing, and uh, and realizing it through uh, limited means, and that was probably the most flattering thing I uh, I read about that tape, and most accurate, um, at least in terms of where I'm coming from. Right. Uh, whether or not it's successfully realized is, is another story, uh, but it's definitely uh, like where the starting line is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and really with Trevor Wishart, um, really uh, really gets me off about this material is like you can have all these high flung theories, and the work can be put together using these like intricate principles uh but at the end of the day it just sounds odd um there's no other way to describe it mm-hmm. and um so that's that uh john huddock uh, followed that um and uh, he's a favorite um you know one, one area of sound uh, i've been kind of keen on exploring over the last several years um from more uh personal listening level is um kind of like international home taping and male art movement uh Typified by such labels like Sound of Pig, Harsh Reality, uh, Fraxia, Spagyric, uh list goes on. Uh, you know, and, uh, band, band Production um, is the label that released this very cassette uh, fitting in there as well. John Huddock, um, again, he's a fascinating artist to me. Uh, he comes out of that very humble, unflashy tradition of the home taping movement. Um, all the labels mentioned prior, I uh, hesitate I hesitate to categorize these people and lump them together, but he's associated with uh, with some of those people just from working with them. Um, but, you know, he's uh, he's his own man. <laughs> and it, it's tempting to describe uh, his work as falling within that kind of tradition of minimalism, but, um, but I don't think it's quite right. I mean, there's always, there's always very subtle changes at play. I think it ties in nicely with, um, with something you and I, um, David, we were talking about with setting this up, this concept... That Alan uh, from Vitrine had mentioned in his recent uh, recent piece he did for uh, Black and Disco, um, in in writing about a track I included on that, um, which uh, you know it, it, he made mention um, from co- correspondence between us of uh, this kind of BS phrase I devised, uh, like threading sound around a thin bit of music, and uh, and what I was trying to get at with that um, is like the idea of uh, employing very elementary musical principles. Um, something as simple as just a reoccurring sound, taking something that is looped or, um, you know, because it's on a certain place on a tape, delaying it or using it in, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a fashion that's unexpected, um, some very slight variation. Because I think it can have, like, a large effect on the piece if it's used um, sparingly and effectively. Um, because there's really there's hardly anything in there to begin with. The sound often has kind of a thin quality, and a lot of it is just sort of it is just kind of noise. It's not organized, and it might appear random. Uh, but I think when you get you can get like one little sliver uh, of like organization uh, or like musicality to it, kind of allows you to take this thing as far out as you can, really kind of bend it, and you still got this like little anchor. Um, tying you down. Mm-hmm. I, I, I picture like, uh, in my mind, I picture like an anvil 
like uh, like say like an, an Acme cartoon, and uh, there's like you know an anvil tied to this wire that's like so eroded, so weak, but the thing just hasn't it hasn't quite yet snapped. Yeah, <laughs> kind of want to like get to the point right before the thing breaks, just sort of like middle about for a few minutes. <laughs> um, go turn over a couple of rocks, uh, piss in the corner while no one's looking, <laughs> and get out right before this this thing comes crashing down on my head. <laughs> Um, that's like a big goal of mine at this point, I'd say, and uh, if that makes any sense. And and while I uh, while I didn't necessarily come up with that solely from listening to like Hudek, I think there is uh, there's a little bit of that on display here with the with the track that we that I included an excerpt from. Um, how there's like one element, and it's just enough to grab onto. But it's always kind of changing and fleeting, and again, it creates an tension and, and a temporality to the work um, that I almost find. Uh, because he uses a lot of natural sources, um, it, it sort of highlights the corners of perception. And uh, while on one hand it sounds uh, very artificial, it's also like a much better approximation of reality to me than just like uh, you know like pasted together field recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. And then uh, and then for real confine um, was, was the last thing we heard from before the solo track. Um, this being the first solo project of Andrew Chalk. Um, I included, I mean, just, I mean, on one hand, I mean, uh, Andrew's work's extremely important to me. Some of my favorite stuff ever. Um, I like every period of his output right up to the present date. And it's kind of mind-blowing how mature his work uh, already was here, right out of the gate, um, on his first release. It's, it's really kind of, you know, my copy's a reissue um, on LP from the 90s, but uh, this was originally released as a cassette in 1985. It's really ahead of its time. Um, first side is kind of pretty, pretty standard, um, like great example of the sounds, but to my ears, pretty standard take on like British harsh noise of the period, sitting within that, uh, new blockaders, um, with whom he worked a, a lot with around this time, sort of fits within that realm. But the B side, um, while still, it's still harsh and unremitting, it's more unsettling to me. There are a lot of these odd textures like muffled scraping that's very difficult to place. And this track in particular, the last one, is really relevant to uh, what I hope to accomplish uh, with my own material um, in terms of, uh, again, yeah, I mentioned it before, but kind of like corrupting the sound. We have this like nice piano part. Um, I don't know if it's lifted or if it's Andrew actually playing it himself, but you know, it goes a lot further than like, here's something pretty you know, romantic piano phrase, or, you know, it could be a classical piece or a pop song, uh, you know, anything along those lines. Like, here's something pretty, and now here's this uh, terrible screeching feedback over it. <laughs> right. Anybody can do that. And, uh, you know, it was already kind of cliched at the time, and it certainly is now. But but here, um, although the other sounds on the track, you know, you might you might classify them uh, as ugly, they're, they're more just kind of disorienting. And they work to, like, bow this other element piano uh to their will and um it's sort of like when alan and i were doing his thing for difficult listening made easy he was talking about one of his favorite records the uh the new order on come org um which uses songs from the radio and mic squeals and room sounds and uh, and also there's like a consumer electronics track which i think he actually played on 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 your program david mm-hmm. uh on like a good area thing for um freeform freakout which is uh comprised mostly of mind games uh, the Lennon uh, song. And the one thing he kind of connected the dots um, to Graham Lampkin's work 
and in the same way of like kind of using other people's music. And when does this, when does it become something else? And again, you know, whether it's Chalk playing this piece or not isn't, isn't very important um, to me. It's, it's clearly, it's, the fact is that it clearly doesn't jive with the entire like 30 minutes or so that preceded it. And so when the piano comes in, it kind of just like slaps you in the face and it doesn't sound right. It sounds, it's very much influenced by everything going on around it. Uh, but why? Um, and I think that that can be applied to any sound, any, any source. It could be a field recording or whatever. Um, at what point does this sound cease to be just self? And, uh, you know, when does it become corrupted or influenced by the sounds it's interacting with? And to me, that's a fascinating question to work with. Um, and I think there's a lot of room to, to play with in there, and a lot from all over. And um, so that's the kind of draw uh, with that. Right. Well, we, we've pretty much uh, come to the end here. And uh, thanks so much, Tom, for uh, taking the time to uh, chat with me. Uh, we have enough, a time here just for one final piece of music that you selected. It's by, and uh, excuse me right up front here, or pardon the pronunciation, but I believe it's Ivan Wyshnagrodsky. Yeah, you had to slip that in, right? good as mine. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, yeah, it's so a closing up shop with uh, a recording from... Uh, from our pal Ivan here, um, I, I, I think it's you know kind of, kind of fitting on several levels. Again, this sort of relates to what Scott was saying about using avant classical techniques. Um, which Nagraski uh, is the um, he's a composer speaking, and then there are some violin parts. He seems to be explaining these uh, musical principles, which are then illustrated by violin playing uh, on an interview that takes up side four of this record. You can hear parts of that uh, on the track that Alan included for the uh, that Black and Disco um, veteran thing he just mm-hmm. did. Uh, the track that I include uh, for the preview on that, um, and uh, and the underlying conceit uh, correlation to make is you know it's, again it's just like one of confusion. Uh, I don't know what he's saying because he's speaking in Russian, <laughs> and I don't know how to play the violin, and uh, and I'm, I was drunk while I was recording all this stuff, so there's there's kind of like several layers of confusion at work. <laughs> Um, and, you know, hearkening back to, um, to what Scott's saying about using avant classical techniques and, uh, shrinking them down to, uh, homebrew, homebrew exercises. Um, Wizard Grasky is actually, he's the same composer playing in the background of Currency of Dreams, which is the track that spawned, uh, Solomon Run, if I'm correct. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not, I'm not trying to leech on any, uh, of the magic of that release or make a commentary on it. I think Graham has very different purposes, and he uses the composer in a different way. Uh, there's a different meaning, and it's a, it's a different uh, piece of music uh, as well, of course. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, but I'd be remiss not to mention that. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think it's you know it's excellent, strange music, and um, and that's all that matters to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know at the end of the day, uh, it's not about the conceit of using someone else's music in your own work. Uh, it's not about whether. Uh, whether, you know, the question, is it music or is it something else entirely? It's not about using field recordings or tapes, playing instruments live or two tape. And it's not even about improvising or composing or any combination of the two. Um, it's just about, it's about doing your homework and using the, um, what you might call the sounding ingredients of life uh, to make something that sounds odd. Um, so that's what the end goal is for me. And uh, so I think it's a, a fine way to send off 
this program. And uh, thank you, David, and thanks, uh, you know, everybody for listening. Um, making it this far in, uh, you're almost you're on the home stretch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Tom. And uh, we'll jump into this final piece here again from Ivan Wishnagrosky.